Good afternoon, everyone. I think we're beginning to uh, see a slowdown in the number of people coming in, so we'll go ahead and begin. My name is Katherine Sainer. I'm the head of the Science and Engineering Library, and it's my privilege to welcome you to the third um, presentation in our quarterly lecture series, which is entitled Synergy, Explorations in Science and Society. The purpose of the lecture series is to provide a platform for the UCSC and Santa Cruz community to learn about the exciting research in science and engineering currently in progress here at UCSC. Uh, many people were involved in the production of this event, and I'll take just a second to list those folks. They are Vince Novoa, Sandy Schmidt, Christy Hightower, Weiwei, Molly Ostrander, and Fred Youngling. So thank you to those of you who helped out with this uh, event. So I hope that um, when you came in, you had a moment to stop by the welcome table because there were uh, several things that might be of interest to you, one of which um, was the uh, sign-in sheet. So if you would like to be informed or receive an email message about future lectures, please sign our sign-in sheet and we will certainly email you. Um, also, you might find one of these lovely little pads of um, post-it notes with our Synergy Lecture Series logo and the URL to our webpage. And the webpage is very nice because it allows you access to past lectures. Um, they, and we are um, recording these lectures so that you can listen to them on the web. And then it will also link you to future lectures. Speaking of which... Uh, this coming spring quarter, we have secured uh, Professor Lindsay Hink, whose research focuses on uh, neurobiology. So I hope you will join us for that lecture as well. So now it is my pleasure to introduce Fred Youngling, um, who is the physical sciences librarian here at UCSC. Fred uh, selects books and journals for the library and other materials, um, particularly in the areas of mathematics, applied mathematics, adaptive optics, and of course, astronomy. So now Fred will uh, have the pleasure of introducing our speaker. Thank you, Catherine. Um, it's nice to see so many people here. I think such interest is sparked not only by the quality of today's speaker, and the fact that we are blessed with one of academia's most prestigious astronomy and astrophysics departments here at UCSC, but also by the great and widespread interest at all levels that we humans have always shown in astronomy. Today we are lucky to have a speaker who will give us a glimpse of why our oldest science is still brilliantly alive, a rich source of discovery, creation, and wonder. Professor David Koo has been with UCSC since 1988 as an astronomer with UC Observatory's Lick Observatory, and as a professor with the Department of Astronomy and Astrophysics, and is also affiliated with the Center for Adaptive Optics here on campus. He received his bachelor's degree in physics from Cornell University in 1972, and his PhD in astronomy um, from UC Berkeley in 1981, and subsequently held postdoctoral positions with the Carnegie Institution of Washington's Department of Terrestrial Magnetism and the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. Dr. Koo has been involved for over 30 years with astronomical surveys of extremely faint galaxies to study the galaxy formation and evolution, and is the author of over 100 published scientific articles. We're delighted to have such a distinguished scholar and educator speak with us today. So please join me in welcoming, welcoming Professor David Koo.
Thank you very much. That was a very generous introduction. The picture that you see is not science, but science fiction. And if I were living in that world in which you could travel to the future, that would be wonderful because there's so much we don't know. But what I'd like to do today is to give you a glimpse of what we do know and what is, in fact, science, but a lot of mysteries for which we are still very puzzled by. And here, the title that I'm giving is Deep, which actually refers to a project, and I'll describe that in a little more detail. But I'm going to use it as a time machine to explore what our universe was like in the past and to try to solve some of the major cosmological puzzles that have arisen as part of the 21st century. And below what you see are two pictures. Um, that's part of our time machine. This is uh, the, probably the main part of the machine, which is the Keck telescopes. And then the other part is just as important. It's a huge camera built at the University of California observatories just a few blocks from here at the labs. And in fact, quite a number of the people who built this instrument are actually in the audience. But this plus the Keck telescope together forms a time machine that allows us not to travel just a mere few thousand years, which H.G. Wells's um, uh, character traveled, but in fact, we're going to go back many billions of years. To give you some idea of the topics I'll be covering today, I will first of course tell you what this project is about in very simple terms to begin with, but then to describe what the puzzles are that we're going to try to tackle as part of using this time machine. And, but to put the whole project into proper perspective, I should give you some idea about how old the universe is, and so I'll tell you a little bit about how you can, you can visualize the age of our universe through a, what we call a cosmic calendar spanning one year. Then we can talk about how large the universe. And this one is sort of fun because it allows me to give you sort of a grand tour from the smallest things that we know about in nature to the very grandest and the largest things and the most distant things that we can see in the universe. And finally, I'll try to just give you a, a hint because this is not a detailed lecture I'll give in physics to describe exactly how we tackle these problems in detail, but just give you enough of a flavor to show you that the big projects we're able to do today can, in fact, tackle the, in some of the major problems uh, mysteries that we have in cosmology. So let's start off with the project itself. It's actually an acronym, DEEP. There's the letters D-E-E-P. It's a deep extragalactic evolutionary probe. Each part of it is actually important. We're going to go faint. We're going to go far out away from our own galaxy. We're going to study time, and we're going to poke quite deeply into space. It's a major project for the University of California. In fact, at this time, it's being led totally by Berkeley and University of California Santa Cruz, we have uh, out of the four senior members, three are here in Santa Cruz and the PI, Mark Davis, is actually in Berkeley. We're, our survey is distinguished by being 100 times better than the previous generation of Keck projects uh, in this particular area. And the puzzles that we're going to tackle relate to the nature of dark energy, the nature of dark matter, and galaxy formation and evolution. Let me just give you just sort of a, a brief description of what each of these puzzles are. First of all, what is dark energy? It's, um, it's, if you ask the physicists, they can, there are whole conferences on this subject. But all I'm going to say is that it's a source of negative pressure. Most of the time people think of positive pressure where you push on something, it may expand. The universe expands, but in the opposite way. The more stuff you put into the universe, the more it actually wants to pull itself together from gravity. Dark energy works the opposite. It is the true anti-gravity in the sense that it actually works in the opposite sense to gravity and expands out. We don't know what it is, but there are three what we call candidates or plausible explanations. One is 
the cosmological constant. This was actually a mathematical term that Einstein put into his very famous general relativistic equations in order to have a universe that, in fact, is stable or static. That was what he believed in the early 1900s. A few years later, Edwin Hubble, an astronomer, looked at the galaxies, found that, in fact, the universe was expanding, and Einstein said, hmm, this is probably the biggest blunder that I've ever made in my life. Well, given that he made the biggest blunder, it's pretty amazing that we're, in fact, reintroducing his biggest blunder and may, in fact, turn out to be the truth with regard to the universe. But probably more likely, it's related to something to do with vacuum energy. This is something the physicists understand, and the common folk on the street would say, very bizarre. What we're saying is that pure empty space with no energy of the kind that we're familiar with, electrons, photons, atoms of any kind, pure empty space actually has energy built into it. But if you ask the physicists to calculate what they expect this energy amount to be, they're off by a factor of 10 to 120. And for those who are math-phobic, what we're talking about is one with 120 zeros after it. So when the physicists laugh at the astronomers and say, oh, you're off by a factor of 10, we can now laugh back and say, well, you're off by a factor of 10 to 100, which is a Google. So you might know Google is a web browser, but this is a 10 to 100 would be a Google. They're off by more than that. Finally, there's a whole class of really exotic particles which act totally opposite to what we normally associate with material, that is, it acts with positive gravity, positive pull. This stuff, for whatever reason, acts in the other way. It has anti-gravity properties. It uses a very a classical term called quintessence. This was the fifth element, not fire, not earth, not water, not air, but the stuff of which the heavens were made, according to the Greeks. In modern usage, it actually refers to this whole class of particles that behave very oddly, where unlike vacuum energy or a cosmological constant, which sort of stays stable no matter how space expands or contracts, this stuff actually changes perhaps both with time and with space. The next category of a puzzle is what is dark matter? This stuff we do know something about because astronomers have been tackling this for almost uh, 20, 25 years. In contrast, this dark energy really has arisen only in the last five years or so. This dark matter basically is easy to probe because what it does is it has gravitational pull so we can see the motions that tell us that it's there, whether it's on near our sun or on the Milky Way scale, but we can't find any visible light from it, nor does it seem to react with light. So this stuff is mysterious. These, though both have dark, are not necessarily related at all. And finally, here's an old puzzle, one that's been around for us for decades, one which Fred alluded to that I've been working for 30 years. It seems odd, but every decade that I work, I seem to know 10 times less about the universe. I think when I started grad school, I thought I knew that we're made of you know, protons, atoms, electrons, etc. And then I hear that, oh my goodness, there's dark matter, so we now are only a tiny fraction of stuff. And then a few years ago, we talked about dark energy, so another factor of 10, perhaps less knowledge. And now I'm hearing we're talking about 26 dimensions and super strings. And so by the time I retire, I truly will know next to nothing. What a <laughs> glorious state to be in. So for the young folks, you have a bright future. You can learn even less than I do by the end of that process. Let's get down to some real data, some science portion. Well, the, I think, most important cosmological experiment in the last few years has been the result of a spacecraft that, in fact, looked at the sky with microwave eyes. If you looked at it with microwave eyes 
plugged into your own neural system, you look at it, it would look absolutely blank. And I'll show you how blank blank is. But if you can jack it up with contrast by a factor of 100,000, then you see all kinds of bumps and wiggles in the sky. And these bumps and wiggles are the clue to something very, very interesting. That is, if you combine it with our knowledge of how distant supernovas seem to be dimming as you look further back in time, or whether we know that the universe is expanding at a particular rate, together it tells us something very odd about the universe. The vast majority of it is this dark energy. A big chunk of it is dark matter, which we know nothing about. And then 4% is the stuff that you and I have experience with. We're made of the ordinary stuff. But that's only 4% of the universe. So we are a minority, definitely, in what the universe has today. Here's the experiment that the supernova folks, this is, again, a major experiment that, was, that UC also led, uh, from Berkeley in this case. But what they did was they tracked how far away they could see the supernova. This is reflected by redshift, which basically just characterizes how small the universe was back in time. So this would be, say, a factor of two smaller. This would be a tenth smaller. But then they would measure how bright the supernova was on this scale, where as you go this direction, you go fainter and fainter. So as you imagine going further and further, you get fainter and fainter. But just these tiny deviations from these different lines tells us that the supernova appear to be a little fainter. They're on the upward direction. It tells us that these were a little bit further away when the universe was smaller. That was enough of a clue to tell us that the universe was accelerating. What's surprising is that we knew the universe was expanding, but we thought that that's the universe should be slowing down as gravity keeps on tugging at it. But with this new source of dark energy that basically acts like anti-gravity, it made the universe expand outward even faster. And here's a picture that I grabbed from the internet. Basically, after the Big Bang, the universe expanded very quickly. But then as you see, it seems to bend over here and sort of expand a little more slowly. But somewhere around here, the dark energy took over, and now the universe is, in fact, expanding faster and faster and faster. And in the f future, many of the galaxies that I've been studying for years will now, would then be moving so far away I can't even study them. So we are living in a strange universe. Here's the evidence that we have for dark matter. Lots of evidence, but here's one that I think is quite, quite lovely. We look back to these very distant clusters of galaxies. They're comprised maybe 10,000 to 1,000 galaxies all bunched together. But what you see here are some blue things. This object, this object, this object, this object, this object are all the same object, but lensed by this cluster. Everything has a pull from gravity and acts just like the bottom of a Coke bottle. Basically, it will bend and distort it. If you look through a Coke bottle, this is the old days. They now have Pepsi cans. But when I grew up, they had bottles, and you can look at things, and they get distorted. Well, this is the type of distortion you would get. It tells that there's a lot of material in here, but if you take together all the light from the stars, and even if you take X-ray telescopes and get all the gas, put that all together, it doesn't come close to explaining what is actually in here that's causing the gravity. That additional material, presumably, is this dark matter. Then the final puzzle was about galaxy evolution. And here I'm going to show you what you would see if, in fact, you could look at the microwave sky with just a straight visual you know, examination with, as I said, ordinary sensitivity. Um, I think George Smoot said this was the face of God. In that case, this is the face of God when God was near its uh, youth. And then somehow, when it became a teenager, it acquired a bunch of pimples and zits. But they're very lovely pimples and zits. Each one of these pimples and zits of God uh, are, in fact, a whole galaxy of probably 10 billion to 100 billion stars, of which you know one of those stars would eventually be our own sun, then the planets around it. 
But the mystery is, how do you get from God's pure, clean face to something like this? Not so easy to do in the time that the universe has actually existed. So that's one of the mysteries. How do you form, how do you get all this variety? You get galaxies that look, you know, lovely in some ways. Some are smooth, some are lumpy, some are blue. Why do you get such variety? And that's one of the puzzles that still uh, we need to tackle. So put into context, since I'm talking about time machines, let's see how far back in time we're actually able to probe with the big telescopes that we have today with our time machine. And the good way to visualize the age of our whole universe is to compress it all into a single year. So that means our 13.5 billion years is now one year. And now let's put this in context. Obviously, the universe was born when we start off with zero. Within 10 seconds after that, was this radiation, microwave background radiation that we saw 10 seconds after the start of the universe. Somewhere by the time of March, the Milky Way presumably started forming, of which all the gases were formed into the stars, of which one would become our own sun. Somewhere around August, our sun was in fact formed. So it's uh, many generations of stars came along to form the iron and the silicon and carbon, the center of which life is made and which sand on our beaches are made and the water, etc. Somewhere around here, life begins in September, November, the first sort of cellular life begins. But all the action is going to happen in December. And by our standards, all the action is going to happen at the end. But in December, somewhere around the middle of December, you get the first backbone animals. Somewhere just on Christmas Eve, you know, maybe that was our first um, sort of Santa Claus, uh, the first dinosaurs appear. Then for a Christmas gift, we have the first mammals, of which we are, of course, the descendants of. The first known birds, and somewhere the, the, the dinosaurs get wiped out on the 29th of December. And the very last day, in the morning sometime, the first apes appear at 10.15 a.m. By nighttime, only six minutes before the end of that whole period of time, do we then get some humans that we might recognize. Handwriting was... 15 seconds before the end of this whole period. The pyramids were built 10 seconds before Columbus discovered America, or not discovered America for the Europeans. Of course, the others had been here for a long time. One second before. So everything I'm telling you about is in milliseconds in this scale. So it gives you some idea of what we're going to be doing. Is We're going to be sending our time machine back through the month of December all the way back to about perhaps May and April. Not quite to the beginning of the galaxies. Other astronomers are doing that, but our project is uh, going to put that back this far. How does stuff form? This is part of the puzzle about how you form galaxies. Well, the simple answer is gravity. It's easy. Uh, it's got a lot of complex physics and gas and black holes and all kinds of things like that. But it's nothing like having a picture to show you what the theorists think how structured form our universe. Keep in mind that the universe started off very, very smooth, and somehow you have to get these pipples and zits uh, from, from, from our universe. So wait a second here, and I'll get this to go. This is what the universe was like when it was 30 times smaller than it is today. That's what this number represents. So as this number drops down, it's approaching today in time. And you can see that from this very, oops, ah, sorry, sorry, from this very smooth uh, distribution, Basically, structures start collapsing as a result of gravity. It forms these filaments and voids, and within these regions is where the stuff is collected to form Milky Way galaxies and other galaxies. In the next 
view graph. I'm going to show, blow this up a little bit more to see in more detail how these galaxies actually start coming together. Here we go. You can see that pieces are coming. So this is what we call the bottom-up way of building galaxies, called hierarchical. You start off small, you build up bigger and bigger and bigger structures. There are other scenarios in which you start off with big stuff that then break up into small ones. But we think that the best knowledge about the type of dark matter that we have, which is called cold or slow moving, it makes this type of structure. If you want to see it in even more detail, here's a theorist computer rendition of what happens when you, in fact, have two galaxies that then start interacting with each other. All, almost all of this activity is due to gravity. There's a little bit of gas in here, but the bulk of the activity that you see in all the complexity comes from gravity, and this is credit to Chris Mijos. Here I'm going to now give you a tour of the universe from very small to very large. Again, like time, it gives you the big picture of what we're dealing with when we talk about the universe. And here I will start off just telling you again that we're 13.5 billion years away in terms of the total distance. You can think in terms of time. Keep in, keep in mind that light travels at enormous speeds, three, you know, 186,000 miles per second. That means in one second, it will travel seven times around the Earth. That's how fast light travels. And then you can see how big our universe is in those terms. Let's start off with the smallest things we know, roughly the so-called quarks. The physicists say, they tell me that they're 10 to the minus 15, extremely small. But if you make a jump of a factor of 100 or so, you get to what they make when they put three of them together into some kind of like a proton. Then you make another leap of factor 10, you get the nucleus. Then a huge jump, a factor of 10,000. The typical atom of which you are made is essentially totally empty for, except for this little tiny dot in the middle of which the nucleus is comprised. And surrounding there are the electrons that then make the full atom that makes it neutral. If you then jump another factor of 10 or so to 100, you can form the molecules. Most people are now in familiar territory. People have actually seen cells through microscopes. Another jump of a factor of 10. This puts things in real perspective. Here are my kids. And you can go to a hundredth of a centimeter, which is about the hair width, if you have hair. <laughs> we can play about that. Fingernail thickness is about 0.1. So another factor of 10 jump. The, th the size of your fingernail is another factor of 10. Another factor of 10 jump, you get to about the size of a hand. Another jump of a factor of 10, you get the size of uh, one of my naughty kids and one of my proper kids. <laughs> now we get to the real stuff. You're in it. On the scale of 10 meters, which is about half the size of this room, to the scale of 100 meters, which is you know, sort of this uh, complex that we're staying at, these are jumps and other factors of 10. If you stand back a little bit, we can see, I think this is uh, Merrill and Crown around here. This is about a kilometer. Another factor of 10. I drew the little box. That's where I just showed you. This is Santa Cruz. Should be familiar to most people still. Monterey Bay, still very familiar. Ground. This is, you know, from here to here is about 100 kilometers, and there's that original map that I had. Keep on moving. There's California, another factor of 10, now 10 to the 8, you know, 1,000 kilometers. Or so there's that little box from before. Get to the Earth. There's that box of California, and here's the Earth at 10 to the 9. Now we're beginning to make use of our speed of light. It's about, what, 20th of a light second from across the Earth. Now things are getting into the regime where I think most people don't really have a gut feeling for it. Even I don't have it, although I know the numbers. Here's Earth. This is Mars. You can see all the other planets. The planets like Jupiter and Saturn are 10 times larger. They take a third of a second for light to travel across here. Look at the sun. This is the sun. It's three 
light seconds across, and that's already a hundred times larger than the Earth or a million times larger in volume. If you move a hundred times further, another scale of a hundred times, then you get from the Sun to the orbit of Earth. It's called an astronomical unit or 500 light seconds. So Sun disappeared right now. We'd still have sunshine for about a little bit over eight minutes, and then the sky would be blank. Okay? So that light that just left is still traveling to us. So we have always eight seconds if we even know ahead of time that the sun has disappeared. The whole set of planets, all the way out to Pluto, which is, again, what most people think of. They say a solar system, that's the end of it. Not quite, although this is quite far. Another fact of 10, five light hours. There's, in fact, a whole set of, I would call pieces of rock, of ice, etc., that's out in what's called the Kuiper Belt. Those are a few light days, okay? 10 to 16 now. And even larger than that, Another jump of a factor of 100 is one light year. There's a whole cloud, of, again, of ices and stuff that perhaps are the, the source of some of the comets that we see occasionally coming through. Halley's Comet is one that most people have heard about. So light years now on astronomical distances. I'm going to pull you back just a bit. It's winter now. If you look at the sky in the early evening, this is something you might see. This is actually from Greece, but it's okay. It looks sort of like the landscape in our neck of the woods. You'd see Orion. This is the Orion's belt, the shoulders. Here's Sirius, the brightest star in the sky. These are very interesting. Up here is Taurus, the bull. So here's Orion, the hunter, and here's the dog associated with the dog star. Each of these are interesting with respect to the big picture of which us humans are related. First of all, in the case of Sirius, there's actually a little tiny companion. And that com tiny companion a star is the size of the Earth but in fact has a amount of material that's the sun. Recall how big the sun was, squeezing it down to the size of Earth. That is what our sun will actually become someday far into the future, probably many billions of years from now. This is, so you take the whole sun, and eventually our sun will, in fact, expand. I'll show you that in a moment, but it will collapse down to the size of what we call uh, a white dwarf, and it will be the size of the Earth. If you look at Orion a little bit close up and with more colors, you'll see some, a very red star. I tell my friends and my relatives that that star is a little red. They say, what? Stars are all white. Look at it carefully. It is a little bit red. You can look at it out in the evening sky. But this red star is unusual in the sense that, well, not only is it far away, 500 light years now, but 700 times the size of the sun. You saw how big the sun was relative to Earth. Now imagine something 700 times bigger. Our sun's not quite going to become a red supergiant or red giant like that, but it will become quite large, many, about 100 times larger. So before the sun dies, it will actually expand outward and become big and red. And so it gives you some idea of what, our, what type of objects we have in space, quite exotic. Now here is a very interesting region. That's a, a Orion Nebula. This is a region of space which is very active in doing what galaxies and the universe seems to do very well. And that's can take gas, use gravity, compress it, form stars, and then as a result of those stars, perhaps form planets. For planets, we get life on Earth, etc. Let's see if I can uh, activate this. So unfortunately, it was a little bit long. Even with these max, it, whoops. Uh, well, if it doesn't activate, I'll tell you. Right in the midst of this nebula are are many stars that are just forming right now. Our sun is quite old, four and a half billion years, but there are brand new stars that are forming today. Part of what our time machine will do is to look back many billions of years to see star formation as it occurred many billion years ago. So 
sort of like paleontologists um, or uh, um, archaeologists, we sort of dig through time by looking far back. And we can then watch how, in fact, our own Milky Way galaxies have formed these stars way back. Here's one of the events that's truly spectacular. In 1054 AD, the Chinese and I think quite a number of other civilizations around the world noticed that there was a very bright star that lit up the, the sky. And it was a result of a star that, in fact, had ended its life in this spectacular explosion. And, but before that process, it had actually converted the simple elements like hydrogen and helium into heavier ones like carbon, silicon, oxygen, iron, all the stuff that we need to form life was then spewed out into space, and then that stuff consolidates, makes more material into planets, etc. We believe that our own sun, for example, is probably a fourth or fifth generation, so we are truly, we, poetically we say, ah, we're the children of stars. We are the children of stars. We're actually made of the stuff of which prior generations of stars have actually spilt its guts out into the universe. The other relationship is supernova, or of course the targets that allowed us to tell that the universe was expanding. But also, what it leaves is also interesting. In this case, it left an object that's called a neutron star. It's basically a pure nuclei, nucleus of an atom, but much, much bigger. If you could take that neutron star and put it into our Monterey Bay, that's how big it would be. If you take that same star and push it a little bit harder so it collapses into a black hole, that's how big the black hole would be. Keep this in mind because I'm going to come back to the type of black holes that we are going to study later when we look back in time. This is a tiny, tiny black hole. It belongs to, remember, an entire solar mass. Remember how big our sun was relative to Earth? The Earth was tiny and got California, etc. This is how tiny the sun would be if we had to compress it to a black hole. We'll see how, how large black holes are when we look further out in space. Here's a picture of a whole Milky Way galaxy. Again, in terms of Size perspective, this is probably over about 100,000 100, light years across. It takes 100,000 years for light to travel across. If you look at Milky Way, it doesn't look very spectacular. It's pretty globby with dark areas. That's because of the dust. But if you could penetrate through that dust with modern technology with infrared, you'd then see something like this. We have a very bright central region, which is called a bulge, inside of which there's, in fact, a 3 million solar mass black hole. And then this is the very thin disk. Here's what our Milky Way might look like if we could see it from afar. This is actually another galaxy called M M100, but it sort of has spiral arms, has a central region. This is what our Milky Way galaxy is like. Our nearest neighbor is actually quite tiny. It's called the Large Magellanic Cloud. When Magellan traveled through the Straits of Magellan, uh, South, South America, he saw these blobs in the sky. The large one is named after him as well as the small one. This is about 160,000 light years across, I mean, light, uh, light years away. Then if you move to what is probably the most spectacular galaxy for us, and since it's really nearby and still big, it's called Andromeda, you can actually see this with your eye. You have to wait till fall, but if you look very carefully in the, in the constellation of Andromeda, you'll see a very faint fuzz. If you can look at it with the deep camera, it would be huge, five degrees across. It would be as large as your hand at arm's length in the sky. But this glob is a galaxy that is about three million light years away, and right now, our guess, even though our universe is expanding, fortunately, we're bound to it. In fact, this galaxy is moving towards us. And John Dubinsky has, in fact, done a simulation of what would happen if you let another few billion years pass by. So remember I was telling you that the sun will last many billions of years. But, in fact, long before that period of time, it's going to be very likely that we're going to be colliding 
with Andromeda, and then the consequence of that for our own system is unclear. Let me see if I can get this to work this time. There we go. This is what's going to happen to us and I forgot which one's which. I think that one's Andromeda, that one's uh, M31. It could be the reverse. It doesn't matter. Both are behaving similarly. They get, we get torn apart. It's debatable whether we're going to be part of these outer regions, in which case the sky will be very, very dark. Great for astronomers, but not so good for probably the vision of beauty. On the hand, we might end up in the middle region where there's going to be a lot of new stars forming, in which case the sky will be extremely, extremely bright. You can see this is the consequence of a few few more billions of years. Fortunately, we don't have to worry about that, but the theorists, of course, would love to know what's going to happen. So there, there's a wobbly image. That's because of the, the screen, of course, not because it's going to be wobbled in the sky. Here's a perspective on the scale now where this tick mark is 10 million light years. That means it takes 10 million years for light to travel from here to here. Here's our local group right here. And here's Virgo cluster, which is an agglomeration of about 1,000 galaxies. So we're really like a Santa Cruz in terms of size, and this is, would be like, I don't know, maybe San Francisco, not quite a New York. There's some New Yorks. This is, would be a, maybe like a San Jose. We're not quite bound to it, and in fact, given the acceleration that we're already experiencing, the prediction is that many billions of years in the future, we're going to, in fact, have Virgo be out of range, and we're not going to uh, be able to be in contact with it. So our neighbor, unfortunately, we're going to have to be really joined together. It's, I guess, a marriage forever in the sense that with Andromeda, we're going to be combined. But for the, most of the galaxies in the universe, it's going to fly apart and never going to have any interactions. Here, going to 300 million light years, another major jump in, in distance and time is an agglomeration that's probably closer to a New York City. This one would have 10,000 galaxies. Many of them probably have huge black holes, and I'll show you pretty soon what, how big they would be. We can go back even further. So the million, so now jump another factor of 15. We jump here, and we reach another cluster of galaxies that's even further way back in time as compared to the age of the solar system. Remember, our, our solar system is four and a half billion years. So we're looking at something where the light had left it before our own solar system had formed. This was the same picture that I told you about the dark matter, but gives you an idea that we can see quite far back already. We can go back 7 billion light years. This is to a redshift 0.83, almost to a state when the universe was half of its current size, but not quite. This is about the region where our deep project is going to really make an impact. It's going to study many tens of thousands of such galaxies, both in these clusters and in, in the so-called field. Here is the deepest image that we have to date. It comes from a million-second exposure taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. It's called the ultra-deep field. A few years ago, you heard about the Hubble deep field. This one is even deeper. And you will see here an enormous number of galaxies. This will give you an idea of the size of that field. To put this in perspective, the moon is half of your thumbnail at arm's length. Most people don't believe me when I tell them that either. But you may be shy, but if you look at your thumbnail and put it in the sky, it's really tiny. Most people think the moon is huge. It isn't. It's only an optical illusion that looks so large. In any case, no doubt the Hubble Deep Field is like a, basically a pen dot on your thumbnail at arm's length. That tiny region is where you see all these galaxies. Then I'm going to blow up just one tiny region. You'll see some of the mysteries with regard to the formation of galaxies and their evolution. Here you have structures that look very much like our Milky Way. These look quite a bit like here. One has a bar, but they look pretty similar. On the other hand, you pick another region, and look at this. You see shreds, much more like the theoretical simulation of these colliding galaxies with tails and, and, and pieces that are assembling 
to each other. So this is probably what's happening very early on. We're looking back perhaps uh, 9 billion years, 10 billion years, when things were just beginning to come together. So this is the almost the end. But before that, I want to tell you about these black holes. We're looking back so far that the so-called quasars are supposed to have been forming at that time. If you make estimates of how big the black hole would be for these quasars, they would be this size. Remember, the black hole for our sun was a size smaller than Monterey Bay. We're talking about black holes now that are one billion of our suns, a significant fraction of a whole galaxy compressed into a tiny dot in the middle of these galaxies. So one of the mysteries is where did these big black holes come from? So keep in mind, that's how big our black hole would be for the sun. This is how big the black hole would be in the middle of a galaxy that we might be seeing many billions of years back in time. And finally, we close with the farthest we can see today. Not forever. We can probably use neutrinos and explore even further back. We might have gravity machines and look back even further. But for now, the cosmic background radiation is really this image seen roughly 400,000 years after the Big Bang or in the cosmic calendar 10 seconds after the Big Bang started when the universe was roughly a thousandth of its current size. So that's the end of my grand tour from quarks to quasars. Now let's go back. What about the D project? What's it going to do? You would think that with the W map and the microwave and supernova and Hubble expansion, some people are saying this is the end of cosmology. I can show you articles, series articles that said it's the end of cosmology. Not much more to do. Well, I'd say we're far from that. In fact, as I said, every decade I'm learning one-tenth of the previous one. So I would say that we have lots of mysteries and how we're going to tackle these. Bottom line is we're going to use galaxies. They're going to be the tracers of dark matter for us. They're going to tell us something about the size of the universe over time, and that allows us to probe dark energy. I'll tell you how that's done in simplistic terms. And obviously, we get to see the galaxies when they were young and when they were forming. We get to see them at an early stage, and that might help us understand how, in fact, it came to be. Our time machine, as I mentioned before, is a combination of the 10-meter telescopes. We just need one of them. We don't get both of them. They give us lots of time, but not that much. Uh, one of these, will, at, at the, on the platform here, will sit an instrument called DEMOS, which stands for Deep Imaging Multi-Object Spectrograph. And thanks to Sandra Faber, my colleague on this project, and especially to the labs that built this instrument, monster instrument, we now have the second generation instrument for, for Keck. And it's about as large as a car, as you can see. It, it looks somewhat like a time machine, but really it's full of optics. But it's super-duper components, I would say, um, is this camera, fantastic optics. I mean, there are pieces of calcium fluoride that are the largest in the world, which if you spit on it, the optics optician will definitely shoot you because it costs a fortune. But the two parts that make our time machine so efficient is we can get 120 targets at once, and we have these big, big detectors, 8,000 by 8,000 across. You may have heard of CCDs, charge-coupled devices. These are the same things that sit in the back of your video camera or your digital camera. But even if you spent, I think, a few thousand dollars now, you can maybe get up to 4000 by 4000 Well, our, our uh, technical folks have made things as large as 8000 by 8000 Here's a picture of how we go about grabbing the light from these galaxies. Here we're looking at, let's say, a bunch of galaxies, a dozen of them, at the focus of the telescope. And then what we do is we make a mask, so-called mask, and it's called a multi-slip mask, and then we park it, and we have to stop in time. So it lands right on top of these objects, and they let all the light through. In reality, we have about 10 times this number in the single mask. 
and, if, and it gives us this amount of data from our 8,000 by 8,000 detector, 99. something percent of what you see is junk. It's junk from our night sky, the molecules up there that creates that junk. There's all kinds of material. There's all, even cosmic rays. The signal that we really want from all this is hidden in this little tiny blow-up. This, all this white stuff you see is emission from the night sky. That's the signal that we want. Thank goodness for the big computers, because we can now use great software as well. Clean this whole thing up, and we get, voila, the signal that we want that tells us how far away these galaxies are. It tells us how fast the star formation is occurring. These lines tell us how fast the gases are moving within the galaxy. We learn an enormous amount from the spectra that comes out of this Deimos uh, time machine. And this, as I said, is only a tiny, it's like a, a few percent. I'll give you some idea of what it is. This is exactly one of these masks that came from the Deimos spectrograph. And um, if you get bored, you can wobble and you can get a saw and play music. But really what this will do is to really isolate a huge number of galaxies for us. And then, and then we, in turn, will put all this together into a grand survey. What's our goal? I've already mentioned the mysteries. Well, more specifically, we're going to study what the patterns are. That means how are the galaxies distributed in, in space? This will actually depend upon the mixture of different types of dark matter. I mentioned there might be something called hot and cold and warm. Well, depending upon what mixture, you'll have different patterns. So the patterns tell us something about the dark matter. We can count the number of galaxies and the groups of galaxies, like our Milky Way local group, and we can measure their uh, velocities. How much are they moving with each other? And Depending upon those numbers, it tells us something about cosmology, and it actually tells us something about so-called equation of state of dark energy. I'll say a little bit more about that, but that's how we tackle dark energy with galaxies. So you see, galaxies are really the fundamental unit with which we can then probe these grand mysteries of cosmology. Finally, we can track the numbers of objects, depending on how bright they are, what colors, how big, how their motions, how fast they're forming stars, how old they are, how much iron and carbon and oxygen they have, et cetera, et cetera. Compare them from a time today, which we call redshift zero, from the two-degree field of slow digital sky survey, massive surveys underway for local space. But we're going to explore everything out at redshift of one, when the universe was half the size or roughly halfway back in time. So that's how we're going to study galaxy formation and evolution. Basically, watch the galaxies as they were in action uh, back. So why is deep such a great survey? Well, it goes very faint. It reaches back 9 billion years. That's plenty far back to see galaxies going through its early stages. As I said, that's when God's face has turned into teenage face. So that's what we're going to watch, that period. Many, we have 40,000 galaxies. The first generation of Keck experiments, which took five, six years of work, yielded something like 600 galaxies for comparison. We're going to go after 40,000. So we can begin to study these patterns with the fidelity and the precision that's unprecedented. Finally, we have precision not only in terms of numbers, but we also have this very excellent what we call spectral resolution. We take a bit of light and we spread it out with the spectrograph enormously so we can look at fine details, and that will tell us something about their, um, their properties. This is a complicated diagram, and is second to the most complicated one you're going to see. Uh, so bear with me. What it does is it shows off how well our experiment is already doing. The top panel shows our galaxies from 10% of the deep survey. The other three panels show the previous generation of experiments. What we're plotting here is in the left-hand side are bright objects, right-hand side are faint. 
Things near the bottom are nearby. Things near the top are far away. And so let's just take a look at the four-meter class telescope project that was done in 1995, only 10 years ago. They got 600 galaxies, and I'm dividing them into quarters. So we have things that are faint and nearby, bright and nearby, bright and far away. And you see they had 24 objects that were brighter than this division line here shown in the green. So in this corner of the box, we have 24 objects. Keck came along with his first generation of instruments, two competing surveys, one from Caltech and one from us. Uh, we both had about 600 galaxies, same as before, but now going fainter. We were able to now pick up something like 60 galaxies in this upper box. With 10% of the data, what we got in one season, incredible, one half of one year instead of you know, six years, we got 1,600 in the same box. We collected 4,000 galaxies, more than 10 times the totality of all the previous generation stuff, and we now have almost 10 times more than that. So you can see we're doing extraordinarily well. Here's a depiction of how good we can do when we have this wonderful spectrograph that spreads light out so much. And just in terms of simple way of visualizing it, here's the first generation called the Low Resolution Imaging Spectrograph built by Caltech. This is our instrument from Santa Cruz. You can decide for yourself which one seems to give more detail. But this one shows a little curvature that tells us how fast the galaxies are actually moving. Our own Milky Way galaxy, for example, is in fact moving from 220 kilometers to 220. So this is not unlike our Milky Way being seen at a far way back, like 8 billion years back in time. What we want to do with all these galaxies is to look at them in space. And here we are poking at redshift 0 0.72, 0 0.7, 0.8, poking redshift 1 and onward. You see the galaxies are, first of all, not distributed randomly. They seem to have patterns. They seem to have filamentary patterns. They may form the regions that are devoid of galaxies. We call them, in fact, voids or groups of galaxies. And the way they're grouping, the way the patterns are, tells us something about the dark matter and the evolution of this structure. And finally, this is the most complicated diagram of all. It has most lines, but in fact, it's the most interesting because it tells us how we're going to go and tackle this question of the nature of dark energy. How do you use galaxies? If you ask for how do you get galaxies to study dark energy? Well, the way you do it, you take advantage of an interesting fact that pressure and density are related by something called W. And depending upon the kind of dark energy, that W value will change. But more importantly for us who are studying distant galaxies, is that depending upon the value of W, the number of galaxies that we see in the patch of sky will actually be different depending upon the value of W as we go back further and further. So at this stage, the universe was one half the size. Here a third, here's a fourth. Our sweet spot in terms of our surveys, right in here. And lo and behold, you, need, you notice that for different values of W from minus 1, minus 0.8, etc., etc., you have these very different curves. So all we have to do is count the number of galaxies and compare them from here to here and see how steeply they rise. Depending upon how steeply they rise, it tells us something about the W. And for the W, it tells us something about dark energy. So this is how we're able to, in fact, tackle something as arcane as dark energy by using something as simple as counting objects in the sky. Finally, I'd like to tell you how we're going to really tackle the question about galaxy formation evolution. Galaxy formation evolution is not a simple process. It involves gas, involves dust, it involves stars, it involves big black holes. To tackle the question well, we've taken one little strip in the sky, and his comparison is the size of the moon, so it's about a half the size of the moon in width and about four moons in length. This region we call the extended growth strip. And what we're doing is we're taking the best telescopes we have from space, which are 
circled here from Chandra, which is an X-rays, Galax, which is ultraviolet, Hubble, which of course is optical, and Spitzer, which just went up in the infrared. Take all of these and pound away in this region and get the very deepest data set we can. At the same time, we're of course taking our own time machine with Keck, get the spectra, and we will get take advantage of our friends from Canada, France, Hawaii telescope and get their images in order to find what the objects are. Even from the ground, there are telescopes like the uh, Very Large Array um, in New Mexico, which together will give us radio signals. Combining all these together, we're hoping then to decipher what it is of these distant galaxies that got them to form in the first place. Why do they have these billion solar mass black holes, which you saw would be humongous? And they may in turn influence the formation of stars because they would, for example, heat up the gas, prevent further star formation. And we have yet all these mysteries to solve. Although the theorists have made enormous progress in terms of these simulations, they're far from understanding exactly what that process is. So in summary then, DEEP is a survey of 40,000 galaxies and we're doing great. We had planned for three years and our last semester is right now. In fact, I think in a few days we're getting one of our few last uh, of our observing runs and assuming the weather is good for the rest of this uh, first half year, we're actually going to finish our, finish our survey. So by next year, we'll have our, our, our survey fully, hopefully, analyzed. It is the world's largest, faintest, most precise, and panchromatic, meaning we're observing it with many different energies, um, and it reaches over halfway across the, big, to the way to the Big Bang, and it's going to tackle all three of what I would say the top mysteries in cosmology, what's the nature of dark matter, the nature of dark energy, the formation and evolution of galaxies. So in closing, I'd like to show you that I think I was predestined to uh, be an astronomer and a cosmologist, because in 1986, when I was a postdoc, I ate a fortune cookie, and it says, look afar and see the end from the beginning. I think that's exactly what I'm doing. And so next year, I'll tell you perhaps a little bit more about what that beginning and end would be. Thanks very much. Now, I had hoped that some children would come because I have some souvenirs, but there are also some adult children, or if you have kids that you would like, I have some Hubble Space Telescope photos, and I have uh, some cards that you can also take them to look at and play with. So, um, and you're also welcome to, of course, ask questions and examine my wonderful musical <laughs> instrument. This is, of course, a Santa Cruz-type instrument, right? We have, uh, I think, a saw, sawing man down downtown. So, Okay, question time. Yes. We don't see the types of dark matter. What we see is the influence of different kinds. What we see is how the space is changing with time. And from the rate or changes of that, it determines what the, the equation is. You're a physicist, you know, the equation of state, basically, the W parameter. And that, in turn, will tell the physicist, hopefully, what possible dark matter, uh, dark energy candidates it would be. And similarly, dark matter would create different patterns. For example, too much large large-scale structure tells us a lot more neutrino type of or hot type of dark matter. Less of it tells us there's more cold, so we can tell on that scale as well. Also, how they uh, come together in galaxies will give us a clue on the nature of dark matter. And um, when I say nature, I mean how they behave. The physicists and the theorists will have to tell us what exactly it means. Any other questions? Yes. Did you explain the difference between hot and cold dark matter? And I no. I did not. All I had said was, I said something about some matter being hot and said it might be traveling very fast and then cold being traveling very slowly. The reason this matters 
is that, remember I showed you how you started off with this very blank slate when God was very young. Then now you got all these pimples. Well, if you calculate from gravity what, how much time it would take to get from that very smooth pattern to this very lumpy pattern, there's not enough time. So how do you get the photons that look like it's so smooth and yet you have this lump? The way you solve it with this dark matter is say, no, 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 no. What you see is not really what's happening. In the background is all this dark matter which doesn't interact with this photon stuff. And it's, in fact, accumulating big, deep gravitational wells. And soon as the universe becomes so-called transparent, the gas then falls into these dark matter, uh, what we call gravitational wells, and it forms a galaxy. So we don't have to see a smooth background. If we had dark matter eyes, then we would have seen a very different, not the smooth picture, we'd seen these lumps that would have been the precursors of our galaxy today. That's part of the mystery about this dark matter. The speed matters because if it travels quickly, it, it wipes out the energy on large scales very quickly, and only the big things can survive. If it's cold, which we think is the best kind of dark matter, then it doesn't wipe out the structures on these smaller scales, but it preserves them. And these small things can in turn then put themselves together into what I call this hierarchical buildup into a galaxy today. So that's how the hot, cold matters and the white matters to galaxies. But this is a simplistic explanation, obviously, for a, <laughs> for a complicated subject. I always have a, a challenge here. Yes? On your one graph, you showed um, a very narrow window, very narrow strip between an accelerating universe and a decelerating universe. That's right. And the noise along that graph was, was fairly pronounced, considering how narrow the strip was. And yet, from that, you conclude, concluded that there was a, uh, the universe was accelerating. I'm not sure I right. That's a, a, a very good point. I showed you the data as was presented by the team that presented it. But um, what I would say is that there's been more data since that time, and, and so the precision has been checked. There's concern that, for example, maybe supernova change a little bit in their properties with time and give you this uh, apparent uh, clue to acceleration. But in reality, as I said, there's actually a body, multiple experiments, all of which are still pointing to a universe that has this dark energy. That's the only way we can explain these other experiments. So I think if it was only that, you're absolutely correct. It seems to be noisy, and you could, in fact, have a slightly different interpretation of the data, especially if it had some uh, inherent, uh, what we call systematic errors. That's correct. But it's the one that became the science uh, discovery of the year, I think, in year 2000. And I think both members have become the National Academy of Science, so it's got to have some validity to it. <laughs> I'm not being too cynical, I hope. Uh, any other questions? Yes. Do we know how many black holes exist in the galaxy? Um, we do know there, there are probably a huge number of black holes. The big black hole that sits in the middle of our galaxy is, is really huge. It's like three million of our suns packed together. But amongst the stars, there are many stars that go through the supernova explosion. Instead of compressing into a pulsar or a neutron star that I was showing you for the crab, some of them will have so, the big enough stars, they'll actually compress it so much, they will actually collapse down into a black hole. And we have quite a number of stars where we could see a star moving back and forth, but there's no dark, there's no um, uh, companion star that's visible, but it's in fact dark. So we can estimate that these are black holes of typically, I'd say, five to ten times our sun uh, mass and size. So we, there are many, probably, just as a rough guess, probably millions out there. We just haven't found all of them, of course. Yes? What's the volume of a black hole? The volume of a black hole. 
Uh, the, the black hole itself, in, 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 in reality terms, is in fact an uh, infinitely dense little point. What we typically say is a black hole is a region outside of this point which has a certain amount of material for which the light cannot escape. So if you want to talk about the volume of the real black hole, it's nothing. It's, it's, it's infinitely dense. But if you want to ask what's the volume in space for which you cannot escape, even if you were light, then that depends upon the mass. If you're the mass of a sun, it's a size a little bit smaller than Monterey Bay. If you're as big as a billion suns worth of material down to a single point, then it would occupy that region that goes out to Jupiter's orbit. So the volume can obviously vary by enormous factors. So there's no single answer to that. It depends upon the mass, I guess, is the simple answer. Yes? Yes. That's correct. The the rough the rough estimate now is that if we are so if, if the material is so called bound, meaning that today or not today, actually a few billion years, maybe five billion years, uh, maybe seven billion years back in time. If at that time the material is already being attracted to each other, it's already slowing down so that gravity was taking hold. This is before, before the accelerating universe really took. At that time they were being bound, then it will continue to be bound, and so therefore we'll come together. So in our case with Andromeda, we know that Andromeda is coming to us, so it's, it's, quote, bound, and we will be bound with Andromeda. But, for example, if we look at the Virgo cluster, which is only 50 million light years away, that's actually moving away from us by something like maybe 400 kilometers after you account for the expansion of space. And that's enough that we are actually not bound today. If, in fact, we lived in the normal universe in which we did not have this acceleration, over time it would just be a matter of time before we would fall into Virgo. And then Virgo would collide with maybe coma someday. You know, as you say, everything just keeps on building up over time. But with this acceleration, things that are now not quite bound will continue to fly apart and will just continue to fly apart further and further and further. So I'm, I'm trying to answer your question as accurately as I can without limiting it to things. Where, don't worry about yourself. If you can preserve your body in some mausoleum forever, your atom's not going to slit apart. You know, you're bound just from the electrical forces, etc. Those are over, overwhelmingly more powerful than, than this expansion of space. Probably thank goodness, right? <laughs> At least for the people of the future, live or dead. Okay, any other questions? Yes, Michael. Uh, I just want to make a, a comment. Uh, there's another time scale we should look at, and that is history of astronomy and explanations of astronomy. Yes. And uh, perhaps we shouldn't pay so much attention to current theories that we do. You talk about dark energy and how it should behave and so forth, pressure. But the truth of the matter is we don't understand it. So That's right. Absolutely, I, I fully agree. That's, that's right. But remember, I admitted from the beginning that, that every 10 years, I know 10 times less. So I said, by the time I retire, I'll know next to nothing. So I'm prepared for this future, in which everything I've learned in the last 10 years is either out the window or becomes a minuscule fraction of something else. So I, that's the reason we're at the university, I hope, is that we find out how little we do know. So, <laughs> is this time? Yes, it's 5 o'clock.